Hello and welcome not to Planet Money, but to the Planet Money Deep Read. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. This is our fourth Deep Read where we forego the traditional podcast and have a nice, juicy conversation about big ideas with an author or thinker who we find particularly interesting. And today we are going to be featuring my conversation with Das. Das? Just Das? That's the whole name? He is the Madonna of derivatives trading. No, he actually has a first name, but he made me swear that I would never say it on the radio because I butcher it so bad. Um, it's something like shut but that's not exactly it. So he told me just to go by Das. And uh, so Das is what we shall call him. And we're going to be talking to him because he wrote a great book, Traders, Guns, and Money, Knowns and Unknowns in the Dazzling World of Derivatives. Now, Das's book was written before the financial crisis. But if you read it when it came out, not much of what happened during the crisis would have surprised you. It's a very detailed, very cynical account of what actually goes on inside these Wall Street firms. Das knows the world very well. He started working in derivatives when he was right out of college back in 1977 when derivatives were little baby derivatives. (laughs) And he's worked in pretty much every capacity you can find in the financial world. He's traded, bought and sold these complicated financial products known as derivatives. He's worked as the treasurer of a large multinational corporation. He's now a risk consultant, which often means helping people understand the complicated financial products he used to trade. He's also, in addition to Traders, Guns, and Money, which is a really fun book to read. Anybody would enjoy it. He's written these massive technical tomes, sort of the real technical details of how these derivative products work. Right. And Traders, Guns, and Money, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of the math, but not much. And a lot of the pleasure of it, actually, is just how he just brings you deep inside this financial world and breaks it down for you. For example, we started talking about the way it works at most of these banks. There's the sales force, and that's the people who schmooze the clients and get them to invest their money with the bank. And then there are the traders who actually take that money and try to make it grow. Traders are notoriously what can only be called ill-mannered. That's a very polite way of putting it. And there's two stories that come to mind. One was the famous breaking wind incident which is basically somebody went to lunch and came back from lunch and they were being particularly rowdy in the trading room. And when they were being particularly loud in the trading room, some other people objected to them interrupting their flow of thought or conversations with their clients. Whereupon this gentleman, who is basically was an FX trader, and generally FX traders are poorly, tra- uh, poorly regarded by the rest of the dealing room because they're regarded as not being terribly bright or anything like that, which may or may not be true. This is just foreign exchange traders, currency traders. Exactly, yeah. foreign exchange currency traders. So he got up on the desk and pretended to turn his back towards the desk which was objecting and effectively pretend to break wind. Unfortunately, it resulted in a full bowel motion with catastrophic results. But then this gentleman went to work for another bank, and this had become almost like a stock-in-trade trick. He was asked to repeat that as a new organization, then duly obliged. He was, act- he was asked to poop on somebody else's desk, and he did it? Exactly. Wow. Um, Quite an astonishing culture. The other one I remember greatly was at one stage, one of the units we were working with covered Japan. And there was this big fund manager in Japan, uh, a lovely man, actually. He's, he's quite aged now, but, you know, he was about four foot ten, tiny little man. But we could never do any business with him, and he managed literally tens of billions of dollars. And then somebody actually told me about the story that he had a partiality for the stereotypical Scandinavian six-foot-two blonde woman. So we actually hired this wonderful people. And don't laugh. She was called Ulrika. Ulrika actually had no experience in finance. 
she actually used to sell cosmetics before this, but she was a very, very clever woman, and she learned a lot about finance in, in a quick way. And she became one of our best assets because the client loved her. We did a whole series of transactions with this Japanese client, and I still have a picture of this rather disparate site of a four foot ten, sixty year old Japanese man who is in his sixties, standing next to the six foot two, very statuesque, very classical Scandinavian woman who's very attractive as well. It's one of the strangest photos I have ever seen in my entire life. But Ulrika was great because she was very good at selling this guy product and we saw very much a lot of information of what they were doing, which helped us make a lot of money, both from the client and from trading. So it was actually a terrific relationship. And what we used to always laugh and say was that we should really hire more cosmetic salesmen because they seem to be actually better at selling derivatives than the ones we thought were good at selling derivatives. Um, but this this brings me to sort of one of the, I think, one of the tensions in the book, and I'm not sure exactly where you come down. You are incredibly cynical. Now, on page 133, there's this line that caught my attention. Um, you say, um, other than sheer luck, there are really only two ways to make money, <laughs> inside information or overwhelming force. Um, and so if, if really there's the only way to actually make money is to be lucky, what is all this about? Why, why, why pay traders so much money? Why go on these exhaustive searches for finding them? What, what is it that they're actually doing if really what their, their, their primary chief skill is to be lucky? Well, I think that's actually a very, very interesting way to think about life. I think essentially when I started in finance, finance was a very honorable profession, a very simple profession. Well, essentially, you were providing a service. It was like a utility. It was like your gas company, your telephone company. It provided a service, which is we took deposits. We basically made loans. We did a bit of trading. If you wanted to buy some foreign exchange, you wanted to buy some securities, we did that. Now, over time, banking changed quite a bit. And when banking changed, what happened is the banks started to wager their own money. Now, you make bets with a lot of information and lots of stuff in the world. But at the end of the day, you know in your heart of hearts, you need a fair bit of luck. I always used to say, and I had this lovely experience with a headhunter once, we're trying to hire these traders, and the headhunter said to me, what do you want this trader to do? I generally have a low opinion of headhunters anyway. They don't really know what they're doing. And so basically I said, look, at the end of the day, I want this guy to buy and sell whatever it is I want him to buy and sell. But can you just find me somebody who's lucky? Because there's no point finding me somebody who's skilled, but who's unlucky and keeps losing money. So just find me somebody who's lucky. And this guy looks at me across the table like I'm insane. And I think the phrase which has become very, very popular is the one that Nassim Taleb actually used, which is fooled by randomness. I've all my life looked at people who think they're good, but I know in my heart of hearts, being good and being lucky are sometimes confused. Now we have all the science and information, and some of that's great. Some of that helps us understand certain things. But to assume that that is actually better than basically throwing darts at a dartboard and so forth is presumptuous. Are you saying it's not actually better? Well, I don't think it's that much better. There was a very famous experiment done by some professors that I used to study with. What they did was they constructed random series of numbers and throw them at a bunch of fund managers. And they said, well, you know, can you work out what's going to happen to this stock? What they didn't tell the actual individuals was that basically this was random numbers. And people drew very elaborate mathematical models and so forth. And this is this stock and this is what's going to happen. And they were a little bit upset and peeved when the two people who conducted this experiment pointed out to them, in fact, what they were trying to do 
was predict the path of random numbers. <laughs> Um, one of the one of the things one of the parts of the book that really brings this home to me is on page eighty nine you talk about um, the the problem confronting somebody who is uh, managing an airline um, and they know that if oil prices go up if oil prices move dramatically it's going to really really affect their business um, and so they want to try to protect themselves from that unforeseen random occurrence from something that might happen in the future. Can you talk about that? Yes, of course. I mean, one of, the, one of my jobs when I used to work as a corporate treasurer is it was a transport company and we also had a 50% interest in an airline. So this is based on your own experience. You were, you were the treasurer and so you, you knew in the, if, if oil prices go up, if, if they go up by 25%, if they go up by 50% and, and at the end of the year, we're, we're screwed unless we do something, right? Well, that's absolutely right, because if you look at the airline industry, you operate on very thin margins. Mm -hmm. Your profits are tiny. And the real problem is, you know, you have to have planes. It's a bit difficult to run an airline without planes. And generally, there is a minimum number of people you've got to stick in the plane, though I noticed that Ryanair is proposing that only one pilot will do, that the second is <laughs> I heard about that this morning. <laughs> so basically, you can sort of cut the cost, but there are limits. Right. So you need people, and you need planes, you need to get people in them. And that's right. And then basically, the other basic variable is fuel costs, and they're very volatile. So, okay, so you sell tickets to fly. But the problem is, between now selling tickets to fly, if the oil price suddenly jumps, what happens is your profits disappear. So what you can do is, number one, you can do nothing. And if you do nothing, you're really betting that the oil price won't rise or will, in fact, will go down. You can go to the oil company and guarantee yourself the price. So in theory, you lock in a profit margin. The third is you can buy insurance against the oil price going up, which is basically an option. So, so, so let me just do nothing. You can go to the oil company right now and say, we will buy this amount of oil from you and we'll just store it. So that way we know that we've bought it at this price. And so if it goes up, we've already, exactly. we have, already have oil. Or you can buy basically insurance. You can pay a little bit now, but if the price of oil goes up, you, you have bought yourself the right to buy it at the current price. That's absolutely right. Okay. But the problem with all of that is that all of those involve taking a view. And let me explain that very simply by saying, let's say I go to the oil company and guarantee my price of oil. So I agree to buy the oil for, say, $80 a barrel. Right so now. Assume, yeah, right now. And I know what it is, and that guarantees you a little bit of profit okay, on your roots. But the problem that you have is you might have a competitor who hasn't hedged. And oil prices go down. Now, if oil prices go down, his cost structure gets cheaper. But yours doesn't because you've locked it in. Right. So if you've bought your oil at $80, but then all of a sudden it goes down instead of up, and then the, your competitor can buy it for $60, then he can, let's say, offer a $20 savings to, to the same customers. And I'm screwed because I'm going to have to match his price. Simply because if I don't match his price, I'm going to be flying around a lot of empty planes because there is nothing more substitutable than two airline seats on the same route. Right. So, so okay, they so, can actually undermine you, or alternatively, they can make more money, which may be that means that they can make buy newer planes or do other things to improve their service. So, whichever way you look at it, you've taken a view. You thought by actually locking in that price, you weren't actually taking a view on oil prices, but in fact, you actually have. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so that's that is the question then. So, if if either if you hedge or you don't hedge, either by hedging or not hedging, you're effectively taking a view. That's Why do anything? Well, if you don't do anything and the oil price goes up, you've basically 
going to have a problem. And this is essentially. A but if you do do something and the oil price goes down, then you're going to have a problem, right? So it's like exactly. So so and since you since the future, as we've been saying, is unknowable. I mean, wh- why do anything? Well, that's actually what happens to most corporate treasurers. They're like deer in headlights. Eventually, after a few hedges which go wrong, they sit there looking startled, going, perhaps crimes of omission are less punished than crimes of omission, so I won't do anything. Did you have that problem when you when you were the treasurer? You had to make these decisions? Well, sometimes I did, and particularly when, and as you know, in all corporate life, when you make a decision, you're judged with the benefit of hindsight. So if I hedged, and the price went up, and I did well. Nobody congratulated me and said, what a great deal I'd done. But if I hedged and the oil price went out, everybody said, but you locked us in at this price. And he said, there, yes, but if I'd known then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. I didn't <laughs> at that time. I guess You have to have something of a masochistic streak to work in finance and hedge and do these sorts of things. But I guess that's what I'm saying. So there, there's this entire industry that is that is devoted to selling you the, op- the the opportunity to make what you're saying is a useless hedge. Well, it can be uh, useful in the sense that... But you don't know if it's going to be useful or useless. Exactly. They, and you also get this lovely uh, sort of sense of illusion. You know, you can turn up at board meetings and say, what about this risk? And you say, well, it's hedged. It's like a security blanket. You sort of wrap yourself in it, but you discover it's pretty threadbare. And sometimes... It doesn't actually work at all. But to some extent, you have to also look at it in the context of industries. You know, we are all herd animals to varying degrees. So what happens is if one group of people hedges, you know, other people follow. And this is actually very true of the gold industry. In the gold industry, it sort of goes through these massive cycles. People hedge their gold production out for 20 years, and the gold price goes up. And then they go, we shouldn't have hedged. They stop hedging. And then the gold price goes down. They say, we should have hedged. They're the worst pickers of the gold cycles I've ever seen. <laughs> the gold industry. That's right. Which, and you would think they would be the best. They actually know what goes under, on in the gold industry, how much is under the ground, how much is on top of the ground, how much is buying, but they're hopeless at it. So, so it seems like there's that basic fact that what you're doing when you're, when you're in finance is you're, is you're making bets about a future that is, by definition, unknown, not here yet, <laughs> impossible to predict. Uh, and, and but then there's all this but then there's all this um science and all these and all these numbers and all these all this vocabulary that's used to dress up that that act and that's what i'm trying to figure out here is are you is this book basically saying look the emperor has no clothes this entire industry is built on on a fallacy there is no way to predict the future and and we keep telling people that we can and we can't i think you have got to be historical about that i think this industry started much the same as insurance it was a way of effectively protecting people from price fluctuations. So the story that everybody tells each other is, you know, the wheat farmer in the Midwest is trying to protect themselves by knowing what the price that they'll get when they sell their wheat or their livestock or whatever the case is. Mm. I think that was true in the first half of my working career, maybe the first third of my working career. That's what I did. Then gradually what I noticed is the other features of derivatives, because they have other features like they're purely commercial bets at one level, which aren't related to whether you actually buy or sell the underlying commodity. So they can be used to speculate and create leveraged positions, which are very sensitive to price movements. That process of creating what I call risk cocktails became fundamentally more important. So they became ways of taking on risk rather than actually effectively managing risk. Mm -hmm. If you look at the global financial markets every day, we trade roughly 
$4 trillion of currency. Mm-hmm. It's a staggering amount. That's something like global GDP in a year is about 60, so about 6 or 7% of that every day. Okay. Now, of that, if you look at things to do with actual trade, so buying and selling real goods and converting currencies, that's probably 3% of that $4 trillion. The other 97% is people just moving money around the world, trying to make money from fluctuations in the value of currencies. Right. 3% of those people are buying, you know, they have, they have goods on a ship that they need to sell in, in the United States, and it's going to take them three weeks to get there, and so they just need to hedge in case the American dollar does something weird, right? Exactly. So they, they just want to get a price right now that they, they, can, they can hedge their risk in case the dollar goes down or dollar goes up or whatever. They want to be able to sort of say, well, we're guaranteed a certain price for our goods that are on a boat right now across, crossing the ocean. Um, and that's 3% of those people. But then the, the remaining 97% of those people are just placing bets saying, I think the, you know, the dollar is going to strengthen, or I think the dollar is going to weaken, or I think the yen is going to strengthen, exactly. or I think the yen is going to weaken. Exactly. And that's a staggering process. And I think that's very deeply embedded now in the culture of financial markets. You were asking me, if it's luck, why do people do it? But that's actually a biggest source of profit is speculation. And in the book, one of the comments I make is that no financial, sorry, no financial trading, no financial contract, nothing in financial markets actually creates wealth. It just transfers wealth between people. Because every winner, there is a loser. So actually, there's no real wealth created. It's just transferred between different people and often by, uh, between people of different perceptions. It's hard to, th- it's hard to hear you talk and say um, that this is a good thing. <laughs> Why is well, this a good thing? Well, it's a, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting. Paul Volcker recently, Paul Volcker, the ex-Fed uh, chairman, made a rather wonderful statement. This was towards the end of 2009. And he said, I have not seen one skerrick of evidence that actually argues that financial innovation has contributed to global GDP, to global welfare, to anything. And I think it's a very important question because, as you know, in the United States and in other parts of the world at the moment, there's this great debate about the role the financial sector has to play. And clearly the financial sector has a place in the world because obviously they take deposits, mobilize them, make loans, they find people to basically invest for new businesses. All that stuff is very good. But the trading part of the business is quite fascinating because obviously there is a little bit of value in that because you give liquidity to people who want to buy and sell. But beyond that, there's a point at which you start to ask the question, is all this basic activity, which is speculative, stabilizing or destabilizing? Is it value creating or destructive? And if you look at the financial system and the costs of the global financial crisis, you start to scratch your head saying, There must be a point at which people will say, this is actually not a good thing. But in fact, the opposite seems to have happened. There was a magnificent opportunity that the crisis created to address this, instead of which everybody ran away from it. I'll give you a very good example. The legislation that's come down in the form of the uh, Frank Dodd bill, which I call, frankly, a Dodd bill. But basically, in that thing, there's derivative legislation. But they don't address the real issue, this issue of speculative activity. Because they could have done it very easily, because it's absolutely child's play to regulate this. Because all you say is, okay, you're allowed to use derivatives, provided you can prove that there is an underlying risk that you're trying to manage. Whether you can manage it well or whether it's exact doesn't matter. You have to show there's an underlying risk. Mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to do something with it. But there was no attempt to address that. So, and 
How would you? But I mean, I, I guess what they were saying is that 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 you know the the argument that got trotted out was no, no, no. The speculation has to be there because it provides liquidity, and like if you if you have to show that there's an underlying risk, then there won't be anybody to then then. I guess the argument is then your hedging costs would go up because there wouldn't be as many people buying and selling these things, and so there wouldn't be as many people willing to make a price for you, right? That's exactly the argument that's actually trotted out. But what I'm saying is the cost of providing that liquidity is not insubstantial, as the global financial crisis showed. Right. And the global financial crisis, the world will lose somewhere between 2 and $3 trillion. One way to think about it is that's a lot of cost of providing that liquidity, not to mention the lives damaged by unemployment and all the other catastrophic consequences of the recession. So people are assuming that this liquidity provision comes at no cost. It doesn't. It comes at a major cost of disruptions from time to time. And, you know, everybody says the global financial crisis is a one-off. It's not. We've had the 2001 tech wreck. We had the LTCM collapse in 98. We had the 97-98 Asian crisis. And you go back, you know, they talk about these one in 10,000 year events, except they seem to happen every year. <laughs> is there, I mean, do you think, you're saying that basically we have this entire industry where people, you know, where salespeople that you worked with are going to clients and saying, hey, I think we should, I think one a, a great investment opportunity for you is to get in on these interest rate swaps here or to get on these, you know, I think we need to do, there, here's a great product that we have that features, you know, put options and call options embedded in the structure and all that sort of stuff, right? There's there's this whole industry that is designed to sell derivatives to people as an investment um, and not as a hedge. It seems like what you're saying is get rid of that entire part of the industry. Well, certainly bring it under control, better control than you have now. And obviously, that would mean a drastic reduction in the activity. And that's what everybody resists. And you've got to look at the banks. The banks are very good lobbyists. They're going to play the, the card. The first card they're going to play is, firstly, if you do that, there's going to be job losses. We're not going to make as much money. We don't have as much capital. We can't lend, da, 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 da. And we've got this mythology that financial innovation is somehow going to drive the economy. Mm-hmm. And so they have very powerful weapons, and that's what they've done. And I am not saying that that is necessarily the only way to go, but that's the thing we should be debating. You know, we should be debating what it is that we want to control. How much rights are we going to give for the speculative activity? Keynes very famously said that when the capital of a country is determined by speculation, it's a very, very unstable foundation. Mm -hmm. And that's where we've got to. And the instability is manifesting itself in various activities, including the global financial crisis. Okay, Adam, that does it for us. If you liked what you heard, you can find a link to Das's book, Traders, Guns, and Money, on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.